Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Richard Thomas tells us about the scramble for Africa and the winds of change. Before I start, if, I, if my voice fades after three hours of non-stop speaking, do let me know. I should be all right for the first hour. The main thing is the scramble for Africa. The winds of change, the, the unscrambling of Africa, is really like the other side of the coin or the, the last chapter in that book. So uh, if we don't get much time for the winds of change, I'm relaxed about that. Now, I, I think I now begin every Africa talk with fantastic math, which shows you that China, India, America, Europe, Latin America, etc., etc., can all tuck into the continent of Africa. So it is a very big continent. And the other slide I show frequently is while there wasn't an awful lot going on in the continent of Africa before the Europeans arrived, there was something going on. We all, of course, know about Egypt and various bits of the Ottoman Empire across the North Africa. We've probably all heard of Ethiopia and its long-standing empire and the rock churches. We've not so many people have heard of Monomatapa's empire in Zimbabwe. We know the story of the South Africans say, well, it must have been the, a lost Roman legion that built the Zimbabwe ruins because it couldn't possibly have been an African. But it, but, it, but it was an African empire. The empire of the Congo, which we don't hear much about because it was stripped both literally and metaphorically, of all its assets, including its people, by the Belgians and the Portuguese. More significant, really, are the uh, empires of West Africa, the desert savannah empires, Sinai, Mali, Ghana, and the Noruba kingdoms of Ife and Benin. In other words, there was a lot going on before the Europeans got there. This enables the obvious link with the reason for our links with Africa before the scramble, which was slavery and trade. The slavers were the Arabs here and the West African kings here and the chiefs and so on across the north there. The Europeans were, were the transshippers of slaves. They weren't the collectors of slaves. Right, so what was the British interest in Africa? Well, in a way, very little. Trade, yes, getting slaves until the slave trade was abolished, yes. Selling trinkets, guns, booze, yes, but not really. It was... Africa was in the way of getting to India. And I, I, a point I know I made before, whenever you're trying to understand the British Empire, the first question is, what did this have to do with India? You might say, what does Africa have to do with India? It's on the way. In fact, it's in the way. And so protecting the empire, we took over Cape Colony from the Dutch, not because we, we thought this was a lovely place for growing nice wine and having holidays. We, it was because it was a very important, very important way station on the way to India. We purchased the Suez Canal, not because we quite liked the idea of having a large canal, because it was shortened the route to India massively. What could be just as important was keeping the others out of the way, keeping those frogs at bay. We didn't want, we had spheres of interest, we had links with chiefs, we had trading arrangements, that's what we wanted. And if these pesky Europeans came along and bothered us, we wanted to keep them out. So we were more, we were concerned to kind of register and solidify our links with coastal trading arrangements. And then in the, in the 1870s, 80s, the Germans, the Belgians, Germans after reunification, again, they're part of their story. We're now unified, we need an empire. And so they began to manoeuvre in what is Tanganyika and Cameroon. And so then increasingly we found there were mineral deposits. I think in my talk on the Boer War, I reminded you that we gave independence to the Orange Free State. And about three years later, they discovered gold on Porter's Rand. And we changed our minds. <laughs> so we couldn't have these Africana types being independent and rich. That was too much. And, and there were growing trade links with West Africa. Sunlight soap, port sunlight, palm oil, all of these things came in bulk from West Africa. Timber, solid. You know, if you've got a, any of your grandparents' furniture, it will be dark wood, a lot of it. That's the ebony, a lot of it from West Africa. And it doesn't rot at all. It is amazing stuff. And it depends whether you're in a cynical mood or a positive mood. Determination to suppress the slave trade. We made ourselves rich on the slave trade. I mean, no element of, of hypocrisy here. Having made ourselves rich, we then decided it was a bad idea 
and put a lot of genuine effort into abolishing it. And people like Livingstone and Wilberforce, you can question them, Mr Cobbett certainly questioned Wilberforce, because he didn't care about the slavery of the British working classes, but he did care about the slavery of the slaves in the slave trade. So there was a genuine humanitarian movement. There is no doubt that it was genuine. And the Suez Canal I've just mentioned, it, it, it cuts the route by whatever it says there, a third, more than a third, I think. So essentially, the Suez Canal was a very important part of our developing interest in the rest of the world and our developing interest in Africa. Disraeli purchased the Suez. We controlled Egypt in an offhand manner by 82. We defeated the Mahdi uh, in 1898 and therefore basically took over the northeast corner of Africa. There were also, from the end of the slave trade, 30, 40, 50 years even, where things were gradually being discovered. There were missionaries and explorers going around on the coast and then gradually inland. In West Africa, they virtually all died of malaria, so not much was really discovered. A Frenchman reached Timbuktu in 1820. Other people had got to Timbuktu. As soon as they were seen to be Europeans, they were then killed. The rest of Africa, Bruce in Ethiopia, 1770s, very early. Nobody believed a word he said. He came back with reports of an amazing place it was. They said, you fantasized, old boy, go away. A hundred years later, they realized he was very much on the ball. Missionaries began to move inland. From the south, Cape Town, because of our trade links and long-established settlements and a nice climate, people gradually moved up into Moffat. Was, that's Livingstone's father-in-law, wasn't it? He, he, they moved up slowly into the nicer, better, clim better climatic parts of southern Africa. German missionaries in from East Africa, Zanzibar, Tanganyika, found Kilimanjaro in 1847, Livingstone on the Zambezi. Livingstone then discovered by Stanley, and then Stanley crossed the, from east to west on pretty inhospitable ground, <coughs> killing people en masse as he, as he went. But gradually the feeling came, okay, we've opened up the centre of Africa, not much going on there, unlike West Africa. And therefore, the slave trade from Zanzibar, run by Arabs, not by Europeans, we must stop it. So the statement needs protection in quotation marks is not heavily ironic, it's slightly ironic. I mean, they needed protection from one lot of controllers to another lot of controllers, namely us, and we were much nicer. It wasn't a totally corrupt thought. It was a genuine thought, because the slave trade from East Africa, which is not the one we mostly know about, was pretty nasty. And there is Stanley meeting Livingstone at a GG. Apparently, he really did say something like that. You know, they hadn't been introduced, so they shook hands very diffidently, but it was fairly clear who they but notice in the background are the Arab slave traders who were looking after Livingstone. Livingstone depended a lot on joining caravans of traders and the trade they were in was slavery. And there's a picture of the rescued slaves and the slave ships and I, I know some other place I've mentioned the amazing story of the West Africa squadron of the Royal Navy that spent years wandering around off the coast of West Africa capturing and rescuing slave ships and sending them slaves either home if they could or to Liberia or Sierra Leone. Now, in that period, working on a British naval ship in the tropics was not a very enjoyable occupation. So hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of British sailors died in that adventure. So again, a, you know, a slight tick for the humanitarian story. So what was going on before 1880? In West Africa, trading posts. There were only, on the coast, or a Cape Coast Fort, Elmina, Bathurst Fort, one or two others, not in Nigeria, because it was even more unhealthy and violent, but certainly in Ghana, Senegal, and around there. We had trading posts. The slaves were brought into these places, held, and then shipped off to the Americas. It was much too unhealthy for settlement. East Africa, trade with Arabia, these towns, places, Zanzibar, Malindi, Kilwa, Safala, Safala's further south, trading in ivory and in slaves. The slaves would carry the tusks on their shoulders to the ports to be loaded onto ships, mostly for, and they were, it was run by Omani Arabs. As, you, as I'm sure you know, the Sultan of Zanzibar was also the ruler of Oman, and Zanzibar was the senior place. It's like the Queen is the Queen of England and Scotland, I can't finish that sentence, can I? <laughs> uh, uh, but, but Zanzibar was the senior part of the empire of the Omani Arabs. 
But there were no cities or empires to take over. That's the big difference between East and West Africa. South Africa, I mentioned Cape Colony on the way to India, and Natal in the 1840s. We, we settled in Natal to keep the Boers and the Zulus apart and to make sure the Boers didn't take over too much of the good farmland, sugarland, etc. British controlled the Cape, some Dutch settlers, the Voortrekkers expanding north. This was another story going on in southern Africa, which the Boer War is the culmination thereof. And I'm sure we all realise that at this time, really until 1922-3, much of North Africa was Ottoman. Uh, it was pretty independent, Ottoman Empire was pretty feeble, but it was technically Ottoman. Now, why the 1880s? So we, we, we've got this backstory, we've got things happening. What happened to make the 1880s into a scramble for Africa? Well, the Anglo-French rivalry in West Africa was getting greater, more explorers. See, if, a, if, if a French explorer gets to Timbuktu and signs a treaty with the king of Sultan of Timbuktu, it becomes a French <coughs> sphere of interest. If a British explorer gets there, it becomes a British sphere of interest. And if Stanley, who was Anglo-American, signs a contract with the King of Congo, because the British won't employ him, because he's not a gentleman. So the kings that Stanley signed treaties with, he did so on behalf of the King of Belgium. So the Congo became part of the Belgian Empire. It sounds bizarre. As we know, the interpretation of the mineral rights clause in the treaty with the the chiefs in Zimbabwe were misinterpreted by the missionary who did not say and anything under the ground belongs to Rhodes's company he just said no it's all yours we, we're just rent, renting it and when the treaty was read out to him a few years later he said I didn't agree to that tough uh, we have the guns to suggest that you do agree with that and so the mineral rights went to Rhodes's company not to the kings of, of Zimbabwe so it wasn't all done in a totally gentlemanly way the ambitions of the Belgians of Bismarck, yes, I've mentioned Congo, and Livingston and others, the genuine desire to spread the three C's, commerce, Christianity, and civilization. I say it's a bit cynical about that, but there's no doubt at the time it was genuine. So was the desire to stamp out slavery. Also, slightly less, um, well, in a sense almost more obviously, but less um, noble, was the fact that in the 18, 80s and 90s, Europe was going through an economic slump. And so how do you get us out of the slump? We expand, we invest, we trade with other people. Who aren't we really trading with much now? Ah, Africa. So let's kind of expand and explore in Africa because we can. The long depression was, was genuine. If you do economic history, it was a pretty grim period, pretty grim period indeed. And so to expand, break out of this, we needed raw materials and we needed markets for the production. India was a very good market. Soap have a lot of our production. But it was a fairly saturated market because we've been trading with them for 200 years. Now we needed a new opportunity. So there were reasons why the 1880s. And I've got a few of them here. I'm going to go through sort of one at a time. Briefly, they were, London was growing as a capital market. Lots of technology and engineering. The Maxim gun and quinine. These are the key reasons, I think, why the technology of the 1880s en enabled the whole story to take place the beginning of the railways in Durban, 1860, so fairly early, but only short railways connecting the bits of the British Empire in the south. The other main railways, like the Mombasa to Nairobi, Mombasa to Uganda railway, was not built until the beginning of the 1910, that sort of time. The Maxim gun, as Hilaire Belloc said, remember we have got the Maxim gun and they have not. The Maxim gun was not available at Esrandwana, which is why we lost. It was available a few years later, which is why we suddenly kept winning. Basically, the beginnings of industrial-scale slaughter. And as I, I know I've said before somewhere, he was given a knighthood for his services to humanity. <laughs> um, you can't make it up. <laughs> you don't need to. Quinine. Quinine was actually around. It was known about by travellers and it was known about from Latin America, where it mostly came from. But it was not used much. So Livingston could have used quinine and probably extended his life. But he didn't bother because he, he, he was only a doctor. He knew better. It was known but not really tested, except that people did recover from malaria much better if they took quinine. I remember when I was working in Africa, we'd say, oh, I, must have, I, I need my anti-malarial, I have a gin and tonic. But then I read somewhere that to have enough quinine in your gin and tonic 
to make you safe from malaria, you needed about 300 gin and tonics. So that was, <laughs> that was more than even we could manage. It was available, it wasn't much used, but gradually it was used, and suddenly people were able to explore the creeks and rivers of West Africa and go inland and discover, yes, there was a lot of, lot of stuff going on, lots of stuff worth exploiting, timber, uh, tin, and from joss and so on. So, so this, this began to make people more excited. Yeah, if I go there, I'm not going to die necessarily as most of the explorers did, the first wave, certainly. Cecil Rhodes also came on the scene. He was a key factor because he, he was an arch-imperialist. Now, Rhodes, they want to pull down his statue in Cape Town and do something to his statue in, 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 in Oxford. I take the view, and I'm sure we'll excite a question or two, I take the view that he was an arch-imperialist, he was a man of his time, he was not axiomatically cruel and horrible, but nowadays he would be, he would be considered pretty outrageous. But he was, if we all say he was awful and terrible, then leave his statue up so that uh, we can be reminded how awful and terrible he was. But he wasn't terrible in the same way the Belgians were terrible in the Congo. He was just trying to make money, and he didn't really care much how he did it. He opened up Rhodesia, and I said, rather tricked the chiefs into signing slightly unfair contract. Now again, of course it was unfair. They were, Asymmetrical power relationships, it says in the academic textbooks. In other words, the Europeans had the power and the guns, and the Africans all they had to do was to sign. Rhodes did some good things and a lot of bad things. He, he, he made sure that he, everything was to his advantage. But he did believe in the British civilising influence, and he did want from the, the Cape to Cairo. And when we took over Sudan, I suppose we just about managed to succeed in doing that. So if you were an imperialist and you were British and British was best, this was pretty exciting stuff. Of course, history then changes and it all becomes very bad. But uh, at the time, it was all seen to be very positive stuff. But there were other voices. Cecil Rhodes, when you first think about, oh, dreadful man, when you read about him, you think he was pretty strange. I mean, he was sent to South Africa to work with his brother because he was thought to be rather fragile and unhealthy and needed fresh air to sort of build him up. So he certainly had a a drive that made him quite successful. But there were other voices, Mary Kingsley being a very important other voice. She became, she was a writer, she was a traveler, she went to um, Sierra Leone, Gabon, Nigeria, and ended up in, in South Africa. She spoke out for the Africans. She said polygamy isn't necessarily wrong, it's just people having more than one wife. Some of their habits are not all awful. They have, they have their own way of doing things. She was believed in a relative view of culture rather than an absolute view of culture, which was that British was best. And she pu published a book of her travels in West Africa, which was sold very well, but the Times didn't review it. They thought it was an unsuitable book to review. And she died nursing in the Boer War. So again, she put her life on the line and did sacrifice it for her causes. And there were people that followed her, people that read her, people that believed she was a good thing. I think after she died, the Times did give her a reasonably positive obituary, for which I'm sure she was deeply grateful. <laughs> now, it all kind of coalesced into the Conference of Berlin, 1884-5, where the Western powers got together, including a representative from Japan, from America, from other places, from, from the, the, the Nordics. We forget that the Danes and the Scandinavians had quite a large bits of empire early on, until we kind of pushed them to one side. Bismarck called it to Berlin, but the Portuguese and the Belgians were quite keen to get it established, that they had right to chunks of Africa. And various interests were established, and their spheres of interest were established. There's a step change here, which I've got a note on it somewhere. You have a sphere of interest, and then you have kind of... <coughs> treaty agreement. You are, you are the main foreign power in that place. And then you have a kind of indirect rule sort of thing, which we instituted in northern Nigeria. And then you have a colony, which you run, like a local government. This triggered the move from spheres of interest, Ghana is where we, the Brits, do our business, so keep away Frenchmen, to, to colonies. And that was a gradual process. But that process only took 20 years. So the British were in West, East and South, French were in mo mostly in West Africa, Belgians gradually establishing treaties all around the Congo Basin, and the Germans, Portuguese, Spanish, all doing bits and pieces. 
and the Ottomans, of course, in the north. It is not a surprise that there were no Africans at all invited to this, um, this conference. Disraeli said it at a Bismarck during the discussions, uh, be careful with that man, he means what he says. Uh, <laughs> unlike most politicians. So this was called together, discuss their interests, and basically solidify them. Bismarck, he was an aristocrat, Prussian, Prussian aristocrat, soldier. He spoke fluent English. He was also a lawyer. He was described as self-centered, neurotic, corrupt, vindictive, treacherous, unprincipled, despotic, gluttonous, and an habitual liar to boot. This is a favorable, favorable biography that's being written. He was also a workaholic who ignored his family and ignored his, uh, treated his friends badly. He sounds perfect man to be a politician. <laughs> now, Salisbury, who was our man, Salisbury was not keen on colonies because he'd been around long enough. He knew about India. He knew about other, you know, the costs of running colonies. He was not keen. But he, had, he, he accepted the two rules. One is the impact on India, and the other is keeping others out, particularly the French. So what were the conference decisions? Well, the main ones were that the, uh, it, it was accepted. The rules of the game were engaged and they were accepted by all powers, Africans not asked, of course. There was to be free trade on the Niger and Congo basins. Free trade on the Congo basin pleased everybody, particularly the Congolese, because it made that they could control the rest of the Congo, the big, the big basin of the river. Uh, the Niger was already pretty much free trade because the French and others had signed treaties with various um, African trading companies <coughs> along the Niger. Now, they weren't all run by Europeans. There were some powerful African trading companies. Some of those African trading company leaders sent their children to schools in England. In other words, there was a Nigerian elite in the 1880s and 90s who spoke fluent English, had traveled, and knew about how to trade with the West. Protection for natives, missionaries, and explorers was kind of put in there. And it was, it was genuine that we're not going to shoot a missionary because he's the wrong religion or because he's in our patch. Uh, but it was, uh, it, it was sort of how they should behave. Slave trade was condemned and effort was put into suppressing it. And the, perhaps the last one there is the key one. New claims should be based on effective occupancy. That's moving, therefore, from spheres of interest to boots on the ground, I think, is the modern expression. And during this period, when it, suddenly the scramble took place. And as an African ruler at the time said, the missionaries told us to close our eyes and pray, and when we had opened them, they had taken over our land. <laughs> so in very short order, the scramble conference acted as a starting gun. The Germans said, oh, hang on, we're in Tanganyika, it's now ours. Portuguese consolidated their long-standing hold over Angola and Mozambique. Belgians extended control into the whole Congo Basin because they were just told over the Congo River, yeah, upper river is yours. They didn't realize how big the Congo River actually was. The French expanded into the Sahel, the light soils. Light soils is, is a wonderful phrase for sand. The British asserted their various, as I say, their semi-claims. East and Central Africa, helped by Rhodes, confirmed their claims in Nigeria and Ghana and the Gambia, Bath Bathurst being a long-standing riverine trading port. The Boers were not keen to accept British rule, and we soon ended up with a Boer War, which is not part of today's programme. The relationship between the Europeans, of course, was not all straightforward. The famous events of Fashoda, 1898, when the, the, the British bulldog and his Solotepe, the Frenchman and his, his Kepi, are sitting, waiting for orders from Paris and London. The story is two things. One is the French wanted to get, they were, they were there in Dakar, so they wanted to get a line all the way across to be French, and the British wanted to have a line from Cape to Cairo. And Fashoda was in the way. It was a totally small and dusty village. Malakal is the nearest proper town to it, in the middle of nowhere, but it was where they met the French and the Brits, Kitchener's troops coming down from sorting out the Mahdi. They met there, and the Frenchmen had walked from there all the way across up to Fashoda. And they sat waiting for two or three months while the Paris and London agreed. And the French were quite keen to push for it. And Marchand was there waiting to fight. 
But they realized quickly, A, the British Navy was rather larger than the French one, and any blockade the British would win. They also realized that Kitchener was probably a better fighter than Marchand, though that's not proven. And it was something that they really didn't want a war at this time. So the French backed off. And as a result of that discussion and conclusion of a potential war, the Entente Cordiale was developed. We and the French decided it's better to talk than to fight, particularly over Africa. So it did, it did have some good outcome. But basically, the British then won, and the road from Cape to Cairo was pretty much open for development, if that's what they wanted. Now, the French guy was Captain Marchand. He crossed through some very, very unfriendly, un inhospitable parts of Africa with 20 French troops and 130 Senegalese troops. It took him over a year. He then got there, stuck his flag in the ground, and said, right, here we are. But uh, he was told to withdraw, and he carried on in the French army and uh, became a general in the First World War. So quite an impressive character, actually. And another one, Pierre de Brazza, but Brazza was the founder of Brazzaville. He got to the northern side of the Congo Basin before the Belgians, stuck his flag in the ground, and Brazzaville became the capital of Congo. Congo B and Congo K, as we used to say, Brazzaville and Kinshasa. So again, another amazing journey, goes that river, doesn't die of malaria, sticks in the French flag, and Congo Brazzaville becomes a French colony. Now that's the relationships between the Europeans, pretty well, pretty well peaceful, as they carved up a very large continent, so there was plenty of cake to go around for all. Not all the Africans, however, were terribly pleased with this. It may surprise you to hear. We know there were five altogether Ashanti wars, thanks to the Maxim gun, we won out. Benin punitive expedition in 1897 basically ended the, uh, the creation of artworks, Benin bronzes and so on. In a day, they arrived, they took over, and that was it. The Benin bronzes ceased to be, they still make them for tourists, but they ceased to be high-level art form. And they, they, the British sent some people to talk, and the, the Benin people said, no, stay out, we don't want you, just stay away. They killed a couple of the soldiers because the soldiers kept on coming. So that means we send a punitive expedition to sort out these disagreeable Beninois, and they were duly defeated. Boer War, we've talked about the Mardi and Omdurman, we've mentioned. So we, we were winning colonial wars with the advantage of high-tech weapons. The French had endless small colonial wars. The French Foreign Legion was founded to deal with these things, and they were not particularly gentlemanly in their treatment of people they captured or the wars they fought. The Germans, uh, this is another contentious statement, in the period 1804-8, the Herero took umbrage to being colonized by the Germans, and so the Germans decided to have a bit of a final solution and got rid of 70% of the Herero population by basically driving them into the desert where they died of thirst and starvation. They also had to deal with the Maji Maji rebellion in Tanganyika. Maji Maji is to do with water. They believed the Tanzanians, if they covered themselves in some magic water, the bullets would bounce off. Unfortunately, they were wrong. And I don't think I need to go into the Belgian story in the Congo. Uh, heart of darkness and all that it really is dreadful. There's not much sunlight in that story at all. But it, but it was suddenly, from Conference of Berlin, 18, late 1880s, to complete control of Africa in a decade. Really an extraordinary advance. So, where are we? We've got French West Africa, northern, that's, that's Congo K. Uh, we've got Madagascar, uh, that's the French, the Mozambique and Angola are the Portuguese, and the German, German East Africa, Cameroon, Togo is there, and what's the other one? Oh, German South West Africa. So, in 1885, 10% is under European control. In 1910, or before then, 90% was under European control. An extraordinary story. Really. Now, the thing about the Portuguese colonies, again, not a very positive story, the, they had large landowners, like they did in Latin America, who basically owned everything. So they had the, could have their own currency, their own courts, their own police, their own shops. And if a, a local, an African, was, did something naughty, there was no state court, no public court for him to go to to appeal or to whatever, the owner of the estate was the person that decided. So extra ju judiciary hangings, etc., etc., were extremely 
common. They owned it. They owned everything. And that meant that it was not, again, not run under Queensby rules. It was run under the rules of whoever made the rules, which was the owner of the estate. That, that was not a one-off or an outgrowth. That was the system. Uh, the Germans had four colonies in Africa. Dutch, uh, German East Africa, which is now Tanganyika, then Tanzan, now Tanzania. German Southwest Africa, which became a colony of South Africa after the First World War. Cameroon and Togo. They had their four colonies. They were quite happy. They carried on being nice, small-scale colonialists, what they wanted to do. And then we get to 1910. The only slight difference is Ottoman Libya, because in 1910, Ottoman Libya, the rest had been taken over, became Italian. If you follow your newspapers, you will know that Darfur has been attacked and systematically raped by the Sudanese government. And the question always occurs, well, why? What, what, what's so special about Darfur? What's special about Darfur is two things. One, it was an independent desert kingdom for hundreds of years. Not rich, but it was on the trading routes between north and south. So it was able to um, make money with customs duties uh, and by selling salt and things like that and camels and slaves. So it was an affluent trading kingdom in the middle of Africa. It was not, therefore, part of the same network as Sudan. And the second thing is, of course, it was because it, when it was wanting to be a bit more independent of the government of Sudan, because it had used, been used to being independent, the government of Sudan would not allow it to do so. So that's caused the, the massacres of the people in Darfur. When the boundaries began to be drawn, you know, OK, you're running Tanzania, we're running Kenya, where's the boundary? You know, you're running Nigeria, we're running... Togo, Dahomey, where, where's the boundary? So they were gradually put together by, in Europe, of course, naturally, put together, and they were drawn, some just straight lines, some followed rivers and mountains, as, as you would. Um, some, many, split up old enemies, or, or put old enemies together in one. Several were landlocked. There's a, one of the kind of, what's the word, theor theorems of development, if you, what, help, what, what keeps a country poor, or what helps it to get rich. Somebody's, some people in the World Bank and academics have done hundreds of years of studies showing, basically, if you're landlocked, it knocks back your potential gross domestic product by several percent. So being landlocked is not a good thing if you live in Africa. Malawi is a classic case of that. It's got things to trade with and export. It remains totally poor because it doesn't have enough that the world really wants, plus 20% increase in cost because of transport. So that's, um, that's, that's a, that is quite an, quite an important one. Now, because it's so big, some are bound to be landlocked, I suppose. Uh, and we get, therefore, some bizarre borders, the Zambian border with the Congo, the pedicule. Anybody been across the pedicle? I don't think you do it more than once. It's very dangerous and unfriendly, but never mind. It's a big lump out of what looks like of Zambia. And the reason that is the case is that to negotiate the borders, the British sent a major general and the Belgians sent a geologist. And the geologist was able to make sure the line of the border was as close to the copper mines as possible. And in fact, if you go to Zambia, all the Zambian copper mines are within half a mile of the Zaire border. Not all of them, most of them. Because basically, most of the copper is in the Congo, not in Zambia. Kaiser Wilhelm saying, please, Granny Victoria, you've got two snow-capped mountains in Africa. Kilimanjaro, Mount Kenya, and I would like one. So she said, all right, Vili, I will give you Kilimanjaro for Christmas. And, and Julie did. And if you look at the border, it would go in a straight line through the top of Kilimanjaro. It now goes in a little loop around Kilimanjaro to the coast and keeps it in Tanzania. Caprivi Strip, Baron Caprivi, remember him well. Bismarck's successor said to the British when we're developing the borders down there, said, we'd like access to the Zambezi, no particular reason, just they wanted access to the Zambezi. Okay, said the Brits, it wasn't the first river, or the second river, or the third river, it was the fourth river, which is why you get the Caprivi Strip, which I'll show in just a second. The Gambia-Senegalese border. A gunboat, Britain's number one colonial offering, that and the Maxim gun. The gunboat's artillery shells would go something like 22 miles from the river, very closely at the border between... Gambia and Senegal, it's a series of arcs like that, 22 miles away from the river. 
That is how they got the border between, uh, between Gambia and, and, and Senegal. Uh, it, it still looks a very strange border, and it is, but that's how they got it. Kenya is a good example of, well, a border set of problems. In a way, these were completely unresolvable, so I, this is not a criticism particularly of the colonial draftsmen, but it's uh, to explain why things got so difficult. Kenya is at the crossroads, literally, of three different cultural groups. Basically, the, the northern Somali-Ethiopian types, uh, the southern Bantu types, and in the middle of the Rift Valley, you'll get the, the Kalenjin, etc. So, coast is Swahili, that's the fourth group in a way, that's mixture with Arab traders. Now, these are not like us and the French, or us and the Germans, in terms of language, culture, history, uh, style of behaviour. These are like us and the Indians, or the Chinese. I mean, they are very, very different cultural groups. So when you hear that elections in Kenya went very, very pear-shaped indeed, and there were mass killings, it wasn't because, like the French, we sorted out on the rugby pitch. It was because these absolute foreigners and aliens are taking over, and we don't like it. So Kenya is blessed with climate, resources, hard-working people, etc., but it's, it's cursed by its cultural divides. There were some benefits to the scramble. For the Europeans, trade, a playpen for war games, uh, not much use to Africans there. For Africans, again, uh, they're exploited, absolutely. Exploited horribly sometimes. They built, built railways, yes, but they built railways to where the minerals were or to where the trading centres were. The railways were not built for the Africans, they were built for the Europeans. Of course they were. Social services, teachers and doctors. This is a genuine one. I mean, the, the arrival of health, education, some social services made a, an amazing difference to people of Africa. Local wars were suppressed. Peace pretty much broke out in much of Africa. And it certainly connected Africa to a wider world in ways it had not been ever before, except, in, except around the edge. So, a, a mixed story, but there were some positives. There were, unfortunately, also plenty of negatives. Local interests completely ignored. Botswana and Uganda were partial exceptions. They, were, they asked the British <coughs> for help, and the Botswana people did. The point is, there were people who gave their lives to, and their energies to, trying to do an honourable job. And I worked on castle, there were a couple of old colonials there, and I was ready as a bright, young, radical person to dismiss them, and I realised these were guys that really had spent their lives doing their best, and sometimes doing quite well, as part of their best for the communities they were living in, learned the local language and culture, and tried to make it work. There were, in the turn of the previous century, some horrendously racist attitudes, which legitimised, that's the point, racist attitudes is one thing, but legitimised the cruelty, and lots of problems which at the time seemed like developments were storing up future problems. Settlers being, uh, being one, minerals being another. The whole model was based on extraction. That, again, we shouldn't be surprised and shocked, that is how the world worked then. It was not all awful, it was certainly not all positive. I mean, the history of capitalism is not based on a neat march to the sunny uplands. It's based on regular chapters of exploitation. And you could argue this began to switch with the rise of the Labour Party and other social attitudes post-Second World War began to change in the 1950s. The, the, the amazing thing was, having spent couple of hundred years just trading on the coast, suddenly within 15 years from let's scramble for Africa to a complete takeover. And given the size of the continent, that is, that is an extraordinary story. Now what's fascinating is Ethiopia and Liberia in non-colonies. Now Ethiopia was pretty much, not controlled, but the, the Italians had a lot of influence there. And it is true that Liberia was not a colony of the US. It was a colony of Firestone Rubber Company. <laughs> literally, again, not, that's not me being exaggerating, that is literally the case. It was run by Firestone Rubber Company. So, as the saying goes, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, we, the Europeans, have taken over Africa. We were all jolly good chaps looking after it. Lots of health, education, trade, uh, 
paying full price for the minerals being extracted. Uh, the Chinese, as I've said before, do pay the full price for the stuff they extract, but they have another agenda. But what could possibly go wrong? Well, we, we all know about the First World War. We neglect, I think, Spanish flu, which apparently killed 3% of the world's population, something like 50 million people. So the effect of that on Europe, as well as everywhere else, was extraordinary. The rise of communism and the appeal of communism, the Great Depression, World War II, and the, the, the last three words there are the key ones. A lot of imperial colonial soldiers, East African regiments, West African regiments, fought bravely in various places. There's a very good French film about the uh, French soldiers fighting for the Algerian soldiers fighting for the French in World War II and being put ahead of the main troops because, of course, they were more expendable than the French mm -hmm. troops. Uh, and that sort of thing is part of the story. And they, and they said, well, we're fighting for democracy, and I quite like the idea of democracy. Let's have some. And I know how to shoot, which is really quite important. Then Suez comes along, and, uh, and the illusion of empire came to an end. Suez was not that important as who keeps the Suez Canal open important because the British and the French came slap up against the fact that we no longer were very powerful. And Americans are deeply antagonistic to empires except for their own. <laughs> I remember talking to an American about the Philippines and Cuba. Uh, he really, really, this was a long time ago when I was a student, so I was 15 years ago, he really, really, really couldn't understand that that was part of the American empire. He just, just could not get his head around that. Because we were talking, having a discussion in Kenya about the history of the world. And he was a history graduate, so he should have known more, but he just could not get his head around the fact Americans had an empire. This is a, this is a slight digression. I mentioned earlier that the issues, of, the issues of getting out of Africa were actually not that serious, with one or two exceptions, and settlers were one of them. Lots of German settlers in Namibia controlled 90% of the usable farmland. Uh, Portugal, Angola, and Angola, Mozambique, the, the concessions, the fiefdoms, I mentioned that. And, and that, they were pretty brutal. British in Kenya, there were never that many British. There were more Chinese in Kenya now than there ever were Brits. More Chinese in virtually every country in Africa than there ever were, than there ever were Brits, Portuguese, whatever. Southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe grew to a pretty large number of Brits, but that, that's a different story. South Africa, because of Cape Town and the expansion from the south, uh, a lot of Europeans from 17th century. The story of the retreat is actually a bit that most of us don't know about, the Colonial well, uh, Development of Welfare. In 1939, the Labour uh, government before then was trying to push through their belief in the fact that colonialism had to end. And in 1939, the Churchill allowed Malcolm MacDonald to push through that act, saying, we will give you independence, basically, if you continue to support us during the war. Uh, but it was, it, was it was an absolute commitment to not just independence, but to helping develop the countries so that they could become independent. <coughs> and the Sixth Pan-African Conference was held not in Africa, but in Manchester, because most of the leaders of the independence movements were at the universities or working in Europe or America. It was extremely well supported. The Manchester Guardian, who sponsored it partly, uh, made very positive remarks about it. And along to these things came people that we were to names to conjure with for the future. Kwame Nkrumah, Azikwe, Jimbo Kenyatta, Hastings Banda, Leopold Senghor, French Frenchman. So they began to organize themselves as a group to express an interest, a demand for independence. And as we all know, Indian independence in 1947 raised expectations, as did that raise expectations. But their cause was a just one. They would get some help, and they would gradually become independent. And so it, of course, transpired. Ghana independent in 57, key date, obviously. The colonial period was only two generations. Jemu Kenyatta was born in Kenya long before it became a colony and became the first president of Kenya. So it really was a short period. Nigeria followed slowly, but it followed. Then suddenly de Gaulle gave independence to the Francophone 
countries having promised he wouldn't do so to the Algerian <coughs> settlers, but there we are. Congo, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, East Africa. Then a gap, 1963. There was a few small ones, six, I think Botswana, 66. Then the big gap until Mozambique and Angola became independent, Zimbabwe in 1980. So you could say the independence period uh, took longer to work itself out than the scramble for Africa took. But that's, I say, I'll unpack some of that. First one was Ghana, led by Nkrumah. Now, I've got uh, a list of steps, really, that went through. And I'm going to spend a bit of time on the steps that it all went through, because it's almost a model for how it happened, certainly in British colonies. First of all, there was a leader who'd been overseas, returning home, the returning leader, the Messiah, <laughs> probably imprisoned. It is almost axiomatic that the best way to become president of a country is to be imprisoned by the previous regime. Suretsi Kama of Botswana was a, was a son of a chief, that certainly helps, but he was also imprisoned by the British for the stupidity of marrying a white girl, uh, and uh, that raised his street cred no end. So you come from abroad, you're imprisoned, then you break with the moderates, the local chiefs, the local trade union leaders, the local business community, the Indian business community, accepting a very slow march to independence. You break with them, demand it instantly. The trade unionists support you, the students support you, and you begin to gather some momentum. And in some cases, the governors may thought you were a villain and locked you up, again, sometimes for a long time, like, uh, I suppose, like in Zimbabwe. In some cases, the governors were quite sensitive and sensible people. And the story about Ghana is really quite a fascinating one. There was a governor that would discuss issues with Nkrumah, established a rapport with Nkrumah, and when, of course, then there'd be a, a local election, not for independence, but for local internal self-government. And these guys, Nkrumah, Jimmy Kenyatta, etc., won these elections, and then they say, well, we've won the election, we're popular, we've got the popular mandate, give us proper independence. And they say, well, you've got to kind of go through a process, you've probably got to become... I'll remain as the Governor-General and you'll still report to me. And many of them accepted that and then scrapped it. But the case of Nkrumah is, is quite interesting. In both Nkrumah's memoirs and Governor Arden Clark's memoirs, they describe a meeting when I think London finally said, yes, you will be independent on probably December the 31st at midnight. And they apparently both welled up with tears and gave each other a hug. Now, it's not often chap you've just let out of prison gives you a hug. But the fact of the matter is, they, they both knew what was going on. They were both highly intelligent people. Arden Clark saw that it was inevitable, and his case was, let's make it as positive as possible. And it, it, in the case of Ghana, it probably was. If you meet Ghanaians, I don't know I've ever met a Ghanaian who was violently anti-British for colonial reasons. Plenty of other places where they are, but not Ghana. So it was really quite quick this whole process, and then Ghana became independent, and Nkrumah became the PM in 1957, 1960, say the, the idea that there was a British governor general, as in Canada, for example, was removed, 1960, it became, he became president. Unfortunately, he then went a bit, a bit sour on the rest of the world, but his trajectory, it was really quite common around the west of Africa. Same sort of story in Nigeria, but it was complicated by the fact that Nigeria, like Kenya, is three different, not three different countries, cultures. Southwest, Yoruba land, southeast, Igbo, Bibio, and not imperial, not even with a chieftaincy structure in some of them, but quite affluent. And then the north, semi-desert, the Hausa kingdoms, quite utterly different. So it had to be some kind of federation, they had to agree who would be in charge. They kind of bent it a bit so that the North would control it. Probably a mistake, but the North would only accept it that way. And so um, it was essentially, it took longer to negotiate a deal, but as soon as they accepted the federal idea, it kind of won through. But the three different major groupings were never going to become close chums. Independence started in 1951, 10 years of discussions virtually before they could get the process going. It probably started before Ghana, because it was seen to be more developed, but it didn't finish before Ghana, because there was too many big issues. Achieved in 1960, Sir Abubakar Tafewa Balewa was the first prime minister. Zikwe was the first president, one from the 
Northmen from the east. And when I was there in 1965, there was a military coup, so it became very quickly started to disintegrate. Lots of hope for the place, lots of clever people, lots of investment, lots of business. Every British multinational you've ever heard of, UAC, British American Tobacco, British Oxygen, uh, Cadbury's had big factories and developments there. It was all looking good, but it did go somewhat pear-shaped. Francophone Africa, and I'm going through this quite fast because I don't want to deny your chance for questions. 1960 was a key year. Ghana Republic, Nigeria Independent, and de Gaulle, Fifth Republic, takes over. I will support you settlers in Algiers for as long as it takes me to get elected, and then I will not support them. Any of you seen the film The Battle for Algiers, Battle of Algiers? Very depressing, but rather accurate film. De Gaulle saw, however, that the battle for Algiers in Algiers was pointless and he offered them independence and he offered all the Francophone countries independence as long as they accepted becoming part of the French community, keeping the CFA franc, French franc, the CFA franc, and basically accepting they were part of the French Commonwealth, which was much less of a Commonwealth than ours and much more of sort of weakened colonial status. They accepted French troops, they accepted French advisors, they accepted French airlines. Basically, they were semi-independent after independence. The one country that refused this was Guinea, under Secretary, who was a socialist. When the French left, they took out every desk, every telephone, every filing cabinet, every telephone directory, every electric light bulb, from the government offices. So they stripped the place. And that was de Gaulle saying to the others, I suppose, you know, stay with us or you're in serious trouble. Now, amongst the leaders of Francophone African countries were some fascinating people. Senghor, he was a poet. I read some of his poetry in translation. It's not, it's not quite up there with Keats, but it's not bad. Politician, he was elected to the French Assembly as well as the colonial assembly. <coughs> he was president of Senegal for a mere 20 years when he died. Félix Soufoué-Boigny, he was a tribal chief and a doctor and a trade unionist, a very traditional background. He was the first president of Côte d'Ivoire for 30-odd years. He was always very pro-French and, and a Catholic in a 98% Muslim country. And to make sure that his Catholicism was seen and understood, he built a cathedral in, the, in his home village in the middle of nowhere, and it's built to be a bit bigger than, than St. Peter's. So when they say on the television, as I heard the other day, St. Peter's is the biggest Catholic church in the world, there's one in the middle of Africa that's a bit bigger. Also 1960, the Winds of Change speech. Howard Macmillan went to Ghana and thought they were doing rather well. I think he went to Nigeria and was rather impressed by the quality of the people he met, who certainly know how to put on a show in Nigeria. And he made a speech to the Parliament in Cape Town, which I've been into, lovely old building, lovely building, and said, among other things, he said, the wind of change is blowing through this continent, and whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. We must accept it as a fact, and our national policies must take account of it. Now, it's a very good speech, very Macmillan speech, because he started by praising the Afrikaners and praising South Africans, and you've done well, and the economy's doing well, and you're wonderful people, and have long glorious history and then he kind of got to the point which was this and then made a few other remarks about the need for change and this was not just ignored by the South African Afrikaners within six weeks six weeks later Sharpville took place where they shot 69 people for demanding some of the rights that Macmillan had been talking about the speech by Macmillan was was important seminal I think is the word but it was ignored, not just ignored, ignored in spades, ignored and vigorously pushed back against. And the police commander who organised these shootings was given a commendation for his efficient and effective action. So it wasn't, it wasn't a good time in South Africa. So let's move on to Colonial Secretary Ian MacLeod was certainly instrumental in a lot of this activity. And you can, take, you can make two arguments. You can usually make three or four arguments, but you can make two arguments. The colonies needed to be free because they'd helped us during the war, they'd served their apprenticeship, and, and, and it was naturally a good thing to do. Second argument is they're too expensive. We're, we, post-war, are weakened, and they're too complicated. They're getting 
too uppity and demanding rights and rioting and throwing bricks, and it's all very difficult, so let's offload them as fast as we can. Now, of course, both these arguments are accurate. They were very difficult. There was some moral argument as well. The politicians somewhat unsurprisingly stressed the moral arguments. In Kenya, the Mama Rebellion was, was there pushed from the Kikuyu to get independence. Jomo Kenyatta was na- jailed in 1953. Jomo Kenyatta was not a leader of Mama. Every English history textbook says that he was. I am probably the only person in this room who's read the transcript of his trial. And it was such a travesty, such an obvious put-up job, that even if he was guilty, anybody reading that transcript would say, well, of course, the guy must be innocent. This is such a stitch-up. The guy that was his main, given the main evidence against him, A, was drunk, B, was bribed, and C, kept changing his story. But other than that, he was guilty and was jailed. So that delayed... Kenyan independence, and of course the settlers were terrified of the march to independence. In Tanganyika, Julius Nyerere was a thoroughly good egg, a genuinely good egg. Even history, even afterwards, suggests he was a good egg. However, he was a slightly naive socialist, so he had a large country, a small population, rather small economy, and, and did his best, but he did a lot of things like collectivization, Ujamaa villages, which caused the collapse of the Tanzanian economy. And then Milton Obote in Uganda, independence came quite quickly. The story of Buganda being, first of all, the biggest kingdom and then being rather sidelined, and the other kingdom saying, well, actually, the Buganda is still in charge, we don't like it. Civil war, etc. in Uganda. 61, Tanganyika independence, 62, Uganda, then 63, Kenya. Tanganyika shortly afterwards joined up with Zanzibar to make Tanzania when the Zanzibaris had their own coup against the Omani Arab leadership. So those two, I've mentioned, Obote led the independence movement. He was then removed by Idi Amin, remember him? I'm not going to go on about that. And then Obote came back. What we generally don't know, it's not in the newspapers much, is that Obote's second coming, as it's referred to, was much more bloodthirsty even than Idi Amin. He took his revenge very bloodily indeed. You might have heard the phrase the Luero Triangle. It's in that triangle where the tribes met that a lot of massacres took place. And in the middle of that was a Gyaza girls' school run by a bunch of missionary ladies, most of whom settled back in Farnham. So if you've met any of these Gyaza missionary ladies, they are a where, I think must be where now. They were a very formidable bunch. And they... I went to the school several times and I was incredibly impressed by what they were doing, surrounded by mayhem. And if people came to them for, and went to the church and the school for sanctuary, nobody ever came to take them out. So these women were tough. Uh, anyway, the point is, uh, the, st- the story of Uganda is quite a complicated one. They all are. The story of uh, Kenyatta is quite a complicated one. He studied in the UK, wrote a very good anthropological memoir, really, called Facing, Facing Mount Kenya, which, if you're interested in Kenya's history, is worth reading. It's the Africans that suffered from Mama. 12,000-plus people were killed. 56, 68 Europeans were killed. Fewer than were killed in road accidents in Nairobi in the same period. So it wasn't, they, it wasn't particularly anti-white. It was sorting out the local power struggle. Now, independence came along in 63. It was very peaceful. And Malcolm MacDonald, who I, 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 I met, if I could, did I give a talk to this group about him? One of my heroes that survives. He was the first person ever, probably now will be forever, who was the governor handing over to independence. The governor general, well, while Kenya accepted sort of oversight from London for a while, and then high commissioner. In three or four years, he had all three jobs because Kenyatta asked him to stay. Another example of this monster working closely with a sensible high commissioner and ending up giving a speech to the Nakuru farmers after independence who had been saying to him that this man is a monster and a killer and an outrage. And at the end of his speech, the Nakuru farmers stood up and cheered him to the echo because he'd said, we want you to stay and keep the country rich. And many of them did. Okay, Southern Africa. Central African Republic founded in '53. Southern Northern Rhodesia, Nyasaland. It was run by a white minority government from what is now Zimbabwe, run by Roy Walensky. The economic case was simple. Rhodesia had white settlers, if you like, sophisticated markets, 
The North had copper, and Nyasaland had cheap labour. It all seems perfectly good and sensible. However, the thing was run again for the white settlers by Roy Walensky. The farmers and the townspeople in Nyasaland began to riot and become unpleasant and aggressive and say, this is not fair. Lord Devlin was sent as a young QC to have a look, and Lord Devlin said, they're not a few trade unionists whipping up protest. This is a genuinely felt movement, and the people of Nyasaland are thoroughly fed up with being exploited. The Federation really cannot survive. So as a result of that, and really was a result of that, Fed instantly agreed to independence, or to unscrambling the Federation and independence. That there's a kind of an independence movement and then along come some radicals and demand you push it further and get more violent more quickly, which is indeed did, is what happened. And what's fascinating about Banda, Banda worked overseas for 42 years. 20 of them in Scotland, some in London and some I think elsewhere. So in other words, he was the figurehead, but he was a rather tough guy, which they didn't expect. His opposition kept having single car accidents. Brakes kept failing. And steering kept going wonky on the, the longer road. So, yeah, he was... He, he, and the dark glasses don't help either, but Banda's, Banda was a very, very tough guy. But he was utterly charming. He, he impressed everybody. And had, the, his patients in Scotland apparently loved him dearly. And that's one of the reasons why the Scottish church and, and Malawi still have strong links. Almost every church, school, missionary in Malawi still has links with something similar in Scotland. Banda, first president, and he kept, he again stayed on too long, and the dark glasses, a bit like um, Papa Doc, really. Very authoritarian, authoritarian is a polite word for Kilda's opponents. Pro-West and pro-South Africa. Walensky, yes. Kenneth Kanda Kenneth is still alive. He's 95. Uh, he's, and he's a great friend of the Queen. The Queen and he used to have little chats and cups of tea. He was, again, a good guy, one of the very few to accept that he'd lost the election and to retire to the golf course. And he used to play golf with friends of mine in Zambia and was just a nice, ordinary guy, so, you know, more or less. Uh, they tried to stitch him up with some corruption charge, but the, the, the people of Zambia, to their credit, said, no, no, he's, he's all right, leave him alone. So he's still there, still playing golf. So what's been going on for the last 50 years? After this rush of independence, Southern Africa, it all slowed up. And I want to make two or three more points before I finish. Smaller countries became independent, not an important part of the overall story. Important for them, of course. 68, Swaziland. 74, Salazar lost power in Portugal. What, I hear you say, has that got to do with anything? That is the trigger, that is the first domino that triggers the collapse of rule in southern Africa. The Portuguese army said, we're not continuing to fight a totally pointless colonial war, and basically mutinied. They didn't mutiny, they just said, we're not going back to Africa. We're going to sit here and march up and down in Lisbon. So they refused to go to keep fighting it. The generals knew it was a lost cause, stopped bothering, doomed to failure. So that meant that the control over Mozambique and Angola weakened, they became independent, Nominally, because they had a civil war, both of those two, for about another 20 years, fueled by South Africa, fueled by China, fueled by Russia, and other North Korea, other communist states. So basically, communists practiced power games in Mozambique and Angola. Very, and Cuba was involved, very, very unpleasant. So they didn't really become independent until almost the beginning of this century. So because of these dominoes falling, South Africa lost its kind of buffer in Mozambique and Angola, it told the, the Zimbabweans, we can't keep defending you, you'll have to give in. So independence in Zimbabwe followed. A whole bunch of reasons. Violence, economics, depression, Mugabe doing the same things that Bandar and Nkrumah did, demanding independence, pushing for faster than anybody was prepared to go. Finally got it. And then having got that, the, why did South Africa become independent? Well, obviously lots of reasons, including the fact that the Soviet empire collapsed. They could not produce Russia as a bogeyman. We are defending the world against communism, because communism has collapsed in a heap. So the end of the Cold War sped up the process of independence for, for South Africa. Now, all the other arguments that we know about, because we've lived through most of this, are true, but we mustn't forget the bigger geopolitical context in which it all has been taking place. 
End of the Cold War, South African independence, President Mandela in 1994. Many people would have thought that was completely impossible, but of course it did happen. Portugal, end of military rule, Mozambique, those two guys running, Angola and Michelle. If you want a prize for the world's biggest and most pointless white elephant, the Neto Mausoleum Stroke Tower in Angola is definitely in there with a chance. It is a massive Chinese-built needle in the sky that has no value whatsoever. People we know about in Zimbabwe, Ian Smith, Joshua Nkoma, Mugabe and Munangagwa. And again, the point I always make about that, he was pushed out. That was a step backwards, not forwards, because he was the guy that arranged the Matabili massacres and was the enforcer for Mugabe. He was the guy that was going to make sure that the regime carried on selling all its assets to the Chinese and making itself as rich as they possibly could do. So, if anything, he is a lot worse than Mugabe, a Marxist trained by Jesuits, which is a scary thought. This is a military man trained in North Korea, even more scary. South Africa, again, we, 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 this is up to date. We know the story. Amazing guy. Mandela kind of survives some of history's critical gaze. He still is up there with the good guys. Mbeki is not up there with the good guys particularly. He denied HIV-AIDS existed and caused the spread of the epidemic. But he was a good administrator. When he was Mandela's number two and ran things, that was when South Africa worked. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this talk 